So um, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Uh, Glenn Wartman today, who's agreed to give us a talk on healthcare-associated infections in the ICU. And um, I've known Dr. Wartman many, many years, and in typical fashion, I asked him for a CV to do a proper intro, and he said, took care of it himself. He said, I'll write you a blurb, which I'm going to read, but he totally undersold himself, so not surprising. Glenn is super modest, but um, Dr. Wartman attended Princeton University on an on an ROTC scholarship, then did his medical uh, school and internship at the Medical College of Virginia before moving on to uh, to Walter Reed to do his residency in infectious diseases fellowship. Um, what he left out is after then, during his time at Walter Reed, he became both the fellowship director for the ID fellowship and also section head for infectious disease. And he joined us upon his military retirement in 2012. Since he's been here, he served as our ID fellowship director he served for five years before moving on, but he was also our, and still is our, our section head or the chair of infectious disease. He also um, is the chair of our infection control committee and is the director for infection prevention, uh, infection prevention for all of MedStar Health. So not just us, Georgetown, but all of Baltimore as well. Um, what he left out is we probably survived COVID, not just at hospital center, but at MedStar because of him because of all of his efforts. And he was named employee of the year for MedStar Washington Hospital Center in 2020 for that. And he's been vital in us, along with us, Shane Kapler, Kapler and us getting a nice grant for our brand new biocontainment unit. Um, Glenn is a very modest down to earth person, but a fantastic physician, fantastic educator, and most importantly to me, a, a great boss mentor and uh, someone I call a friend. So with that, I'm gonna hand the reins over to Dr. Wartman. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about healthcare-associated infections in the ICU. Um, this is not the most exciting topic. Um, a lot of my goals for this talk is to try to explain some of the annoyances that can happen to you in the ICU from infection prevention, um, from some of the nursing staff. You're like, why are people bugging me about this? To kind of give you a, a glance behind the curtain about why these things go on. Um, and then to cover some uh, teaching cases that have come up here at the hospital center over the years that we've learned from and hopefully will help you down the road. No conflicts of interest. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about history, a little bit about reimbursement issues and hospital compare because that drives some of the things you see going on in the hospital. I'm going to touch on specific healthcare associated infections, a little bit about why we wear gowns sometimes, why we wear masks sometimes, and what specific infections drive that. And then a collection of five or six random cases that we've seen here at the hospital center. So a little bit about history. So Florence Nightingale is really the mother of infection prevention. She was involved in the Crimean War. And her famous quote is that it may seem a strange principle to enunciate that the very first requirement of a hospital is that it do the sick no harm. And really, this is the driving principle of infection prevention. People shouldn't come in with one problem and then get more problems on top of that during their hospital stay. So what we're trying to do is eliminate hospital-acquired infections so that people who have a broken leg don't get a cowdy or a clabsy or something else on top of that. The father of infection prevention is Ignat Semmelweis. I don't know if you remember him from medical school, but he was involved in Vienna. And at the time, childbed fever took the lives of basically one out of every five women that gave birth um, died. And so he was trying to figure out why women died. And this was before Louis Pasteur and germ theory. And he broke the people, the women into two groups. And there were the women that were followed by the midwives, and there were the people that were followed by the, the male doctors and the medical students. And he determined that if a woman gave birth and was delivered by a male doctor or a medical student, she had a five times higher chance of dying. And then he went through risk factors and said, well, the people who uh, gave birth by the male doctors gave birth supine, the priest rang a bell versus no bell with the midwives. but they also underwent autopsies. Um, and then one of his friend actually died after doing an autopsy. He had pricked his finger while doing an autopsy and then developed cellulitis and died. And again, this was in the pre-antibiotic era. So he hypothesized that there was something 
on the autopsy. He called them cadaverous particles that were transferred from physicians to patients. And he ordered all the medical staff to clean their hands after doing autopsies, not to get rid of bacteria because no one knew what bacteria were, but to eliminate the smell that was on people's hands from doing the autopsy. And as you can see from this graph, the rate of purpural fever dropped from 10% down to 1%. And so really um, huge impact in infection prevention. And so a little history, this is Semmelweis here with his underlings washing their hands just as he taught them what happened to Semmelweis. Um, and it's interesting, um, nobody listened to him. Um, so he made this finding, he showed that it worked. He finally left Vienna because he was unable to endure further frustrations. He eventually developed dementia, was committed to an insane asylum, and then beaten to death by guards and died at the age of 47. So I, I always think there's a lesson in here somewhere about being too early um, and not getting to people to listen to you. Um, but, but this is kind of an interesting history of Ignat Semmelweis. So what did happen with Semmelweis's findings? Um, this is a painting from Thomas Eakins about the clinic of Dr. Gross in Philadelphia. Thomas Eakins is the painter, and you can see him here, self-portrait. And uh, 28 years later, after, after Semmelweis published his findings, as you can see, they're operating in suits, uh, bare hands, um, really not uh, any infection prevention going on here. 33 years later, um, again with Thomas Eakins, and uh, he's here a little bit better than no longer operating in suits, um, but still there's some improvements in infection prevention that could be going on. And then the last slide, 172 years later, we're still looking at hand washing. And as physicians, when we do surveys, physicians wash their hands less than 70% of the time. So just a plug to wash your hands, take home the message of Ignat Semmelweis. All right, enough about history. We'll move on to healthcare-associated infections. The definition is an infection that is acquired in a hospital or healthcare facility. And the CDC estimates that one in 25 hospitalized patients will get an infection as a result of their care. It's kind of crazy in the era of molecular medicine and everything that we're doing, still one in 25 patients gets a hospital-acquired infection. And that translates into approximately 75,000 deaths due to hospital-acquired infections. Now, the big five um, are C. diff, CAUTI, CLABSI, hospital-onset MRSA, and surgical site infections. I'm not going to talk about surgical site infections or MRSA. I'm going to focus on the top three. We also look at hospital-associated pneumonia, and Chris asked me to touch on that because of your guys' practice. But I'm going to go over why the top five are the most important when it comes to hospital and why if you order a CDF test in your hospital, you're probably going to get a call from infection prevention. You certainly do in this hospital here. If you go to order a urine test, someone's going to ask you, are you sure you want that urine test? And I'm just going to kind of tell you why that happens, what's driving that, that process. So a lot of it is driven by something called value-based purchasing. And value-based purchasing is part of the Affordable Care Act and was enacted in order to drive improvements in practice. In DC, we practice according to something called value-based purchasing. If you happen to practice in Maryland, you're part of quality-based reimbursement. Maryland is like the only state that has a carve-out to it practice a little bit differently. Um, this is a paper performance metric, which means that if you meet or exceed the metrics in these domains, Medicare will, will give you money. Um, if you don't meet the metric, Medicare will withhold money. Medicare is the largest insurer in the United States, so they carry a lot of weight. These penalties translate into millions of dollars of either penalties or bonuses. So I'm gonna talk about value-based purchasing because that is all states except Maryland. And they break it into domains of clinical care, uh, patient and caregiver experience, efficiency, and safety. 
So if you look, safety makes up 25% of the pie. What counts as safety? Safety is central line infections, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, SSIs, MRSA infections, and C. diff. So it's the hospital-associated infections which count as safety, which account for 25% of the pie for reimbursement. In Maryland, actually, it's 35% of the pie. So the impact of healthcare-associated infections in Maryland is even higher. So your performance in these domains translates directly to penalties or reimbursement, which is why your administrators are so focused on these areas. Obviously, we want to do good things for patients, um, but money is also driving this. The way the scoring system works is um, the top arrow here is attainment points. So the CDC says the average hospital, the median hospital has 0.774. So it's observed over expected. So if you're expected to have 10 infections and you have 10, that would be one. In this scenario, the median hospital has seven infections. They're expected to have 10. So their SIR, their standardized infection ratio is 0.7. That's where they set the bar. If you're worse than that, you don't get any points and you actually get reimbursed less. The better you do, the more money the hospital gets reimbursed. And again, they're trying to drive innovation, trying to drive improvements in patient care. Um, and ideally, we get down to zero and have zero infections. So for our, my hospital, my medical system, um, the goals are to be in the top quartile in these domains. And again, it's observed over expected. So based on a hospital our size, we should see a certain number of infections. To be in the top quartal, quartile, we actually have to be better than 51% of the hospitals out there. So we don't wanna be at one, we wanna be at 0.51. For C. diff, it's 0.23. We have to be in the top 23%. Um, so as you can see, these are very difficult um, measures to achieve, um, but that's the only way you're going to actually get in the top half for sure. In the top quartile, you need to be even better. Hopefully that makes sense. This is something I never knew about when I was in the military, um, but since coming to the civilian world, it's, it's important. Another part of this is these scoring systems are used to rate your hospital. They show up on something called medicare.gov and you can go online, hospitals can go online, insurers can go online, people that issue bonds to hospitals can go online and they can see how your hospital is doing compared to other hospitals. That all translates to a scoring system. This is from 2019 for the MedStar system. And as you can see for my hospital at the time, MedStar Washington Hospital Center, we were a one-star hospital. And um, for safety of care, we were below the national average. Since that makes up 25% of the pie, that we translated into a very low score for us. However, last year we went from one star to three stars um, and we're hoping to do even better this year our hospital president has a drive to five, and we're hoping to eventually get to five stars by improving in, in many domains. How do we get there? Um, we got better in all these HAIs. So as you can see in the green, we've made substantial progress, still struggling a little bit with our surgical site infections and our hand hygiene is not where we're supposed to be. All right, so that's hopefully all you need to know about the administrative and the money side of this. And now I'll transfer over to the specific infections and kind of go over how, how we got to where we are. So C. difficile. There have been a lot of advancements in C. diff over the last five years. And I'm constantly um, surprised by some of the older physicians who think of C. diff as they learned it in medical school. That's not how we approach C. diff anymore. Um, what we've learned is that asymptomatic carriage is very common in hospitalized patients. Up to one in five patients will carry C. diff 
and be completely asymptomatic. That means if you go around willy-nilly and just do tests on people, you are going to find approximately one in five patients are going to test positive. If you give someone a laxative and then the next day you do a C. diff test, one in five chance they're going to come up positive, And that diarrhea has nothing to do with C. diff, but it has to do with the laxative that you gave them. So this is a really critical point to understand. Carriage in infants is actually really common. About one in three infants are colonized and are living happily with C. diff. Some patients do develop C. diff-associated diarrhea and will have watery diarrhea, fever, oftentimes a leukocytosis. A small subgroup of that will progress to get pseudomembranous colitis, where on colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy, you'll actually see pseudomembranes. And a small percentage of the whole pie will develop fulminant colitis with toxic megacolon. So this is, this is a, a spectrum. And this is very difficult for some physicians to kind of get their, get their head around um, that not everybody that's positive has C. diff. Not everybody that's positive needs treatment. And really, the goal is to diagnose people that truly have infection. The problem that we're hamstrung with is the diagnosis test stinks. Okay, in a word, it, it stinks. The one that we use here and many hospitals use, we use a two-stage system. We use uh, basically an ELISA, uh, this card here. We drop a little bit of stool here. The stool. Uh, diffuses across the, the disc here, and it looks for the presence of antigen, GDH, which is found on all C. diff, toxin-producing and non-toxin-producing. It also looks for the presence of toxin. Okay, so this first card here is antigen-negative, controls-positive, and toxin-negative. This test will be called negative. We're done. This next card here, antigen is present, so C. diff is there, and toxin is present. We would call this test positive, and you're done. The problem is this last card. This is where the antigen is positive, so it says C. diff is there. It does not detect toxin, but sometimes the toxin could be below the level of detection, and the person still could have C. diff disease. And so what most labs do is they reflex to a PCR assay, a molecular assay. The one we happen to use is called a LAMP assay, a loop-mediated isothermal amplification test. And what that does, it detects the gene for C. diff toxin. It does not mean that gene is turned on. It does not mean that toxin levels are high enough to cause disease. It just means that the gene is present. And that's, that's the problem we have with testing. Many, many studies, I have not put in all of them, which have shown that the test is way too sensitive. And we have a problem with overdiagnosis of C. diff in the molecular er era. About 10 to 15% of completely asymptomatic patients are, are PCR positive. Even more problematic in some studies, about 14% of patients who have toxin are asymptomatic. And it kind of gets you into this whole Zen thing of what does a positive test even mean with C. diff? Um, does the patient have disease or not? And you really need to use the art of medicine in concordance, uh, in accordance with the test to decide what to do. I wish I had a better answer about testing, but this is just the way it is right now. So in 2017, we were faced with the question of how do, how do we control C. diff? Um, should we get UV light? Should we bleach better? Or these papers were starting to come out about overdiagnosis. And we decided to focus on diagnostic stewardship as a way to improve our C. diff rates. Um, I did a study here, which is probably one of the more rewarding studies I've done with a couple of the residents that were here, where we collected stool from 50 patients, and I still had some contacts in the military lab that agreed to do whole genome sequencing for us at no cost. So we sent 50 isolates over to the Walter Army Institute of Research, 
and did whole genome sequencing. If we had person-to-person -person spread, the isolates should be related. If we didn't have related isolates, then we don't have person-to-person -person spread. So the first thing we did was an epi-analysis, and we found that these are all of our units here. These are the number of cases, and the colors are the wards of where C. diff was occurring. It's a rainbow. There are cases spread all over the hospital. If we truly had person-to-person -person spread, this isn't what you see. Person-to-person -person spread occurs in clusters. Um, so from the epi curve, this just didn't make a whole lot of sense. The other thing we noticed that 50% of the cases were diagnosed early in admission, day four to seven. Again, this doesn't make sense with hospital-acquired C. diff infection. So then uh, the coup de Gracie, as they say, was the whole genome sequencing. This is the dendritic, uh, the dendritic tree showing that none of the isolates were related. So we did not have any person-to-person -person spread. What's happening, and many other studies have since showed this, is patients come into the hospital with C. diff. Um, then either we detect colonization through our testing, or for the few patients that actually develop disease, we do something, we give them steroids, we give them antibiotics, and they'll actually develop C. diff disease. So the genetic and epi data did not support person-to-person -person spread. We decided to launch a stewardship program. And I, for me, this kind of uh, puts everything in focus. About 30% of hospitalized patients will have diarrhea, okay? We give them tube feeds. We give them laxatives. We give them contrast for CT studies. We give them Zosin, which causes diarrhea in everybody. And so you've got this sea of stool going on here. Then about 20% of those patients are colonized due to uh, some reason. And in the middle of that is patients with C. diff. And what we're trying to do is find the C. diff and not detect all this other garbage that's there. We launched on a diagnostic stewardship program to diagnose people before day three. So you wanna find those people that have it when they're coming in the door. And so anybody that has a whiff of diarrhea, test them. Test them early, I don't, for, before day three, that's fine. After day three, we wanna be cautious about who we diagnose. So we started this program and every day, I look at C. diff tests that are ordered. Routinely, not as much now, but routinely I would see patient has constipation in the morning, gets PEG, a slew of laxatives, and then the night float team orders a C. diff test. It, you may be laughing, this happens all the time. Or I see patients that are, have hyperkalemia and are given caoxylate. Caoxylate works by causing diarrhea. It's supposed to cause diarrhea. That's how you get the potassium out of the body. Um, people would send C. diff tests on that and they were detecting colonization. And so it was this kind of silly stuff that we, that we really got a handle on. At least in our hospital and probably at yours, if you order a C. diff test, you're gonna get a prompt that comes up in the computer because while I live this, you guys have more important things to worry about than C. diff testing. And so this is for the, the house staff to kind of remind you about whether or not you should order the C. diff test or not, kind of prompts you whether or not to order the test. Each morning, I look at all the tests. If it's a slam dunk, I approve it. And about 50% of the time, the tests get approved and they just get run. However, about 50% of the time, I cannot figure out why the test was ordered. Infection prevention then will call the team and say, did you really want this test? About half the time, the team says, we have no idea why the test was ordered and we'll cancel it. Um, and about 50% of the team, time, the team will say, no, we really want it. At least at this hospital, we always defer to the primary team. So if the team says, no, we really want it, we'll run it. We'll run it. You guys are at the bedside. You get the final determination. So this has worked phenomenally well. I mean, I, I had my doubts in 2017. 
as you can see, we had 218 cases of C. diff a year um, before we started this project. And now we're down to, we had 38 cases in 2020. And this year we're off to a banner start of only about uh, eight to 10 cases so far. What I was worried was that we were gonna miss patients and patients were gonna develop C. diff colitis, end up in the ICU. Um, to my knowledge, and I, I was looked pretty closely, this has not happened. And again, we always give the, the home team the benefit of the doubt. If they think the test is ordered, they just go ahead and order it. Um, so I, I think when I talk to my friends at infection prevention, stuff like this is going on at all hospitals in the US because we're all being driven by the same um, things. And so when infection prevention calls you about a test, they're really not trying to be a pain. They're just trying to really not diagnose colonization. The other part about colonization, multiple studies show that care is worse when patients are in contact isolation. If you label somebody with C. diff and they don't really have C. diff, they don't get the same care. Uh, people get, don't go in the room. They tend to round from the door because they don't want to put that on the gowns and gloves. Um, all right, so in summary, um, the biggest thing here, the C change is recognizing that C. diff can cause colonization. If you do more testing, you're gonna find people, but you're not gonna find disease, you're gonna find colonization. You need to test patients that have disease. Do they have, do they really have di diarrhea? Have you eliminated other causes of diarrhea? Um, and I put this slide out here because in our hospital, two, this is number of, number of tests per patient days. Two Northeast, three H, two Northwest, two H. These are all our intensive care units. And so our intensive care units order a slew of C. diff tests. However, I will throw out that two G is our medical ICU. So the medical ICU is actually pretty good about C. diff testing, our surgical ICUs tend to test um, rather freely. Now, I know it's hard. You have a patient that is so sick, you wanna make sure you're not missing something, um, but just take a step back and, and think, could there be another reason why the patient might be sick uh, besides C. diff? All right, moving on to CAUDIs, um, catheter-associated urinary tract infections. 25% of inpatients are catheterized. In your world, it's probably 100%. Um, 25 to 50% of catheters aren't indicated. And every day you keep that catheter in, the risk of infection goes up 5%. I didn't put it in here, but a couple of years ago, we did a quality improvement project where one of my fellows went up to our step-down unit and was able to remove about 30% of lines every day. And so that's a small unit. The physician to patient ratio is probably close to one-to-one. -to -one. Um, but despite that, 30% of Foley's were staying in. Um, so as physicians, we, we just tend not to, not to keep it on the top of our mind. The definition is a, sending a urine, which is positive after the Foley's been in for two days, or if it's removed the day prior. So if you think you're going to game the system and, oh, I'll take the Foley out and I'll send the urine culture the next day, yeah, that, that doesn't work. You're still going to get tagged with a county. You have to have a positive culture plus symptoms, and you have to have signs and symptoms. So it's not just a positive culture, but there has to be clinical findings before we would count it as a county. The real focus is no Foley, no county, and uh, we have something here called the WTF project, which is why the Foley. So the nurses are really focused on why the Foley. You know, do you really have to have a Foley in this patient? Again, in your world, certainly in the first three days, you're gonna need a Foley. But after that, female patients, um, there is a Purewick. Um, could you use a Purewick and get that Foley out? Um, and the other part of this is diagnostic stewardship, trying to figure out, should you send the urine culture or not send the urine culture? This gets tricky. Um, once the Foley is in, colonization occurs at about 5% per day. So you leave it in long enough, all Foley's will have bacteria by one month if they're in long enough. So if you're gonna send a urine culture and the patient has a Foley in, 
many times it's going to be positive just because it's colonized. So what we've tried to do is get people to think is really indicated. We've tried to cascade testing where you would send a urinalysis first. If the UA is stone cold normal, chances of the patient having a urinary tract infection is pretty small. Now, if they're neutropenic, you can send the test. You know, there's always certain ways around it. But in general, if the UA is normal, they don't have a urinary tract infection. And the other thing we've done here is we've eliminated add-on cultures. We found that what was happening is urine cultures were being sent, urine was being sent for UA and culture. The urine would sit for six hours in the lab before somebody added it on. And by then it's, it's useless. You might've had two bacteria, bacteria replicated every 20 minutes. And so now you just have to send a fresh urine if you want a urine culture. We do have a prompt um, to kind of guide you is the test ordered. Again, we have very, if you're at a teaching hospital, you're gonna have junior learners. And oftentimes the most junior person is actually doing the ordering and they're just gonna sit down and pan order. It's worked pretty well. Again, in 2017, we were not doing well, but over time, we're actually hitting our, our goals and doing pre pretty well with catheter-associated urinary tract infections. For CLABSIs, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this one. Um, you know this, it's people that have bacteremia in the setting of a central line. We review almost every case and we bend ourselves backwards trying to find another source that we can attribute it to. So if the patient has pneumonia, sometimes we're able to get out of this being a CLABSI. If there's another source, if they have a big abscess somewhere, but if they are candidemic um, and you're kind of stuck owning that infection, but we do work with you to try and uh, get within the rules. The thinking is most of this happens because of the hub. Okay, so you have that, that chlorhexidine patch here. So the bacteria either crawl down here because there's not good care at this site or when the line is accessed. Every time you access that line, it's an opportunity for bacteria to get down into that line. So most CLABSIs are, are this, this uh, part here. Device stewardship is key. Uh, as you know, there's a bundle. You, you have, when I think of how we used to put in lines, it was kind of crazy with just a mask on. Now you've got to be fully gowned, gloved, hatted, masked. You have to have an observer. Um, and, and there's a whole checklist you need to follow. And then for diagnostic stewardship, we require peripheral blood cultures. This is different than what you may have been taught before. It used to be you get one, one set through the line and one set peripherally. That's kind of fallen out of favor over the last couple of years. Um, and the reason it's fallen out of favor are studies such as this one. Um, and this is just one of many studies that showed if you draw blood culture through a central line, you're more likely to find contamination than true infection. In this specific study, which I'll go through in a little detail, um, they discouraged drawing through central lines. They re-educated their phlebotomists about aseptic technique. If they did draw through a line, it had to be observed, and you actually had to get permission from someone like me to be, to be able to do it unless they were febrile and neutropenic. Um, this is what happened. The percent of blood cultures drawn through the line as expected basically fell to zero, although the total number of cultures stayed about the same. So it was just a shift from, um, uh, you know, cultures drawn through the line and cultures drawn peripherally to just cultures drawn peripherally. And this was their data. Uh, the contamination rate from venipuncture fell because they educated their phlebotomists, but the uh, percentage of cultures, um, draw, uh, the number of cultures drawn through lines, which were uh, thought to be contaminants, drew, fell dramatically. And overall, the number fell dramatically. And from getting a CLABSI rate down, if you can get those contaminants out of the system, that's gonna help your CLABSI rate. This is not just us. So this is the Johns Hopkins policy. I don't know if anybody from Hopkins is on the call, but I, I stole this from your policy. 
NIH has the same policy. Really, central drawing through a central line is more likely to give a false positive test. Now, there are case by case exceptions, um, and so we'll work with the with the dialysis team or you if it's a specific case. Um, but in general, we, we don't want blood cultures drawn through a line. And then Chris asked me to cover hospital-acquired pneumonia. I am no expert in this area, um, but I did want to update you. There's some guidelines that have come out from IDSA, SHEA, APIC, um, and there was a, a small change which required us to change our practices, which I wanted to go over with you guys. So they have a summary of recommendations to, pre to prevent VAP, and they break it down into essential practices uh, where there's pretty good data. So obviously you wanna avoid intubation and then prevent reintubation. So the preference to use non-invasive ventilatory measures, minimize sedation, uh, improve physical conditioning, elevate the head of bed. It seems like this has been going on for since I was in medical school, but you know, when I walk around the units, I don't find this too much because probably problems with uh, uh, happies and other problems. Oral care, but without chlorhexidine. So for a number of years, we were using oral chlorhexidine. That is no, now a no-go. So if you're chlor using chlorhexidine, you should stop. There are some additional approaches to consider if you're not where you're supposed to be. Um, I don't think this is used too much, at least in the ICUs I've been around. Um, and then there's other certain stuff that is in your world, not my world, which I'll put here. And then generally not recommended. Again, oral care with chlorhexidine is no longer recommended. Probiotics, not recommended. Um, all these things here, uh, really not recommended. Interest to me, chlorhexidine bathing, you know, we do this for lines to prevent central line infections. There's some data to support that but it doesn't work for, for VAP. Um, but your patient may be getting it for CLABSI prevention. All right, um, so that's it for hospital-acquired infections. I'm gonna move on to gown gloving and masking. And so there's three different levels we use. There's contact precautions. So that's where you're gonna gown and glove. Um, Depends on your hospital. What we're doing within MedStar is we're doing it for our multi-drug resistant gram-negative rods, um, but we stopped doing it for MRSA and VRE. Some hospitals, some of you on this call, your hospital may still do MRSA and VRE, but we've made a decision not to do it for MRSA and VRE. And for me, the principal driver was care is impaired. Uh, patients don't get the same level of care when they're in contact precautions. And we now have alternative treatments for MRSA and VRE. So we, we removed that. Droplet precautions, it, it's droplet 24 seven these days with COVID, we're, we're masked all the time. Um, but in the previous era, it was for flu, um, meningococcal uh, meningitis, we would use droplet, but basically we're on droplet all the time these days. Airborne are things that could waft down the, the hallway. So chicken pox, measles, um, TB. For the ID fellows, I, I throw this up and you know, for TB cap, cavitary, it's gonna be airborne. Flu is droplet. Neisseria meningitis is gonna be droplet. Measles is airborne. Shingles, non-immunocompromised, so just regular shingles is just um, contact as long as it can be covered. Shingles, multidermatomal, or if they're immunocompromised, that's airborne because they're coughing out the virus and get chickenpox right around your hospital. And then the trick question for ID is tularemia, which is standard. That's not spread person to person. The next chunk is occupational exposures. So you're working and your intern sticks himself with a needle. And the source patient has hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV, they have the triple. And so the intern's like, what, you know, what's gonna happen? What's the risk of me getting these infections after I stuck myself? And then what should you advise that intern to do? So in general, the rule of threes is if the patient has all three of these, the risk of you getting hepatitis B is 30%. But 
vaccination is, is a condition of employment. So all healthcare workers have to be vaccinated against hepatitis B. So you should be vaccinated, which brings the risk to essentially zero. Hepatitis C, the risk of transmission is about 3%. So it's up there. The good thing is we have treatment for hepatitis C. You would be monitored by occupational health. If you do develop hepatitis C, we would treat you down the road if that happens. We don't give prophylaxis. We would treat you actually if you, if you get the infection. For HIV, the risk of transmission is about 0.3%. So it's low, um, but, it's, but it's real. And we do offer post-exposure prophylaxis. If it's during the day, you go to occupational health. If it's after hours, you go to the emergency department and you go now. And the reason is there's a lab model with a simian um, uh, immunodeficiency virus where they challenge them and then they have time points when they would give them prophylaxis. And it's really a matter of hours. You need to get that prophylaxis on as soon as possible. We allow a window out to 72 hours but really it's ours. You've got that virus in your tissue. You want to get your antivirals on as soon as possible. So HPV, everybody should be immune. Um, if you're a non-responder, we would give you um, immune globulin. HCV, we would follow you and then treat if you got infected. And then HIV, it's post-exposure prophylaxis as soon as possible. I cannot tell you how often I get a call from occupational health about people that got stuck, went home, the next day they thought about it, and then they came into occupational health two or three days later and want prophylaxis. That's not how it works. You need to go in quickly. And then some random cases, just for uh, fun, some pictures here. This was a patient admitted to the hospital center for alcoholic hepatitis, um, was pretty sick, was in the unit, also had HIV with a CD4 count of 50. The ICU doc noted a rash which was here. Um, so dry, scaly rash on the hands. Also had a rash scattered all over his body, very pruritic, pretty itchy. Um, another example here, kind of this uh, plaque uh, on, on the side of the leg here. So, you know, what would you do next? And really the next step is to put the patient on isolation. And then you could call me or you could call your friendly dermatologist. We would just take a little scraping, go down to the micro lab and look through a microscope and see something like this. And this is scabies. And there are, the top paper is from Hopkins. Uh, the bottom paper is from a hospital in Europe. And this can spread like wildfire through the hospital. And early recognition is the key for scabies. So conventional scabies, there's 10 to 15 mites. It can kind of be difficult to diagnose. Uh, patients will complain of an itchy rash, usually in the intertriginous areas on the fingers. Um, this is an example on the hand, maybe some linear appearance to this here. And then there's crusted scabies where you have a, a bazillion mites. And so you have these crusted areas which are just all, all mites. This is very contagious. This is another patient we saw at the hospital center, also an AIDS patient. So those are all living mites. So it's transmitted by skin-to-skin -skin contact. So the nurse is in there doing her, her patient care, putting on lotions. Um, um, cleaning the patient, changing the bed linen, that nurse um, or you during your exam can, can become infected right away. And then when you go home, you can infect your spouse, your children, and so it can spread outside of the hospital pretty easily. The identification is pretty easy with crusted scrabies. You just do a scraping. So prevention, um, early recognition was great. The ICU doc knew what it was, put the patient on contact. We got a scraping. And then what do we do for the nurse, the intern, the attending that, that looked at that patient? Um, and these would be the choices. And we actually have 
topical permethrin stored in occupational health. We've got a couple hundred bottles in there and we would offer prophylaxis to the caregivers. And so we don't want you taking this home to your families. So actually we would give this to you and, and give you a bottle for your family members too, if you had had contact with them. Great. Um, the next one is, uh, I don't know if we've seen this in the ICU, but we've definitely seen it on the wards. This was noted in a patient's bed, a homeless patient's bed. Um, looks like that. And then uh, we actually put it under low power in the micro lab, which is kind of cool. And so the recommendations for management um, was to put the patient in contact isolation. So this is a body louse. So something you'd see with your homeless population. Um, it can spread some infections such as, you know, uh, epidemic typhus. Um, but uh, in general in the US, uh, I guess we've seen a couple of cases of Bartonella endocarditis which can be spread from body lice. But the treatment is getting the clothing away, washing and drying them, um, and then no other specific treatment. Another one with our patient population that sometimes comes into the patient population into the hospital is someone and then their bags are filled with these things, which then get into the bed. Um, NRH refused to transfer and um, so these are bed bugs. So do not transfer any infections, um, but are, can cause painful bites. And all you need to do is collect all the, all the uh, bedding, collect the patient's clothing, backpack, seal them all, get rid of them. Infection prevention will take care of it and the patient can be transferred. The infection, the things don't live on the patient, they live in the patient's um, belongings. The next one, uh, it's an outpatient, but could come into you guys. This is a patient with CML who came in with fever and a rash. Unfortunately, he sat in the waiting room for an hour before he got seen and told someone I have a rash. By the time he got up there, he had these lesions on his forehead. So these are called vesicles. They're fluid-filled lesions. And then one on his, several on his back. And so fever and a vesicular rash, chicken pox. Um, so this is something that can spread quickly. Um, and what do you do about it? Again, for healthcare providers, when you in process, this is one of the reasons we make sure you have evidence of prior vaccination, um, either by an antibody test or, or history. But visitors may not be vaccinated or there may be patients that are immunocompromised. And this is an infection prevention nightmare. But healthcare providers should be immune. And then we'll do contact tracing for this specific case. We had to track down 30 patients, but fortunately all of them are older, had prior evidence of chickenpox and were immune to infection. And then I think I have just one, one last case, um, uh, two, two last cases. You may see somebody in your unit that comes in with a rash and then has this vesicular rash in this pattern. So it's a vesicular rash. And so this is a dermatomal rash. You think about shingles. Again, just dermatomal, you can just use contact, but immunocompromised, you need to put them on the airborne. This was a renal transplant patient from last month. So this patient ended up on airborne isolation, even though it was just one dermal tome, because by the next day it actually had spread to multidermal tomal. This was a heart transplant patient that we had. This was a patient actually that was in our unit. Um, he was Nigerian, homeless, originally came in with fatigue and anemia, was found to have a CD4 count of three. He was placed in airborne isolation because his CT was abnormal. And I'll show you some pictures. A little bit of uh, cytopenias here, a little bit anemic. So this is his CT. Um, so he's got this bilateral tree and bud appearance. This was the official read by radiology. And so the home team sent a quantiferon. 
uh, T-spot on an um, IGRA, and the quantiferon came back as negative. Um, so it's, it's negative, you know, what would you do? So the team did option number one, unfortunately, um, but the correct answer is number two. Um, this patient had multiple risk factors for TB, um, actually ended up growing TB out of his blood and eventually um, dying. So you always need to rule out a TB in a patient with an upper lobe infiltrate, previous TB, or an AIDS patient with an unusual chest X-ray, which was this guy's CT. Um, the algorithm is you send an AFB for the gene expert. It's a molecular basis. Negative times one, continue airborne isolation. Negative times two, consider removal from isolation. Um, so if you still have a high clinical suspicion, keep them in isolation, send more sputums, get a bronchoscopy. Um, but low pretest probability plus two negative molecular tests, you can remove them from isolation. And this is a lesson that we just have to keep teaching again and again. People will send the IGRA and then say, IGRA is negative, they don't have TB. This is a, um, a pooled analysis of multiple studies that people tend to be anergic when they have this, when they have TB. So the pooled sensitivity of the IGRA is about 75%. So 25% of people will have a negative interferon gamma release assay. It's the same thing with skin testing. Um, you're anergic, you don't respond. So if you think the patient has TB, you really don't use the IGRA or skin test to help you in your diagnosis. You need tissue, sputum or tissue. And this was the last one. This patient came in last November. Um, he had recently returned from Nigeria. He had fever and rash for a day. So what level of isolation should be started? Um, so fever and a rash, vesicular rash, the, the answer is airborne. Um, so he was put in airborne because we thought he had chickenpox, but that was okay. He turned out to have monkeypox um, and it just returned from Nigeria. And so we got lucky. But we got lucky because the lesson was fever and a vesicular rash goes into airborne isolation. And that's it. So a lot of topics covered. Hopefully it'll come in useful for you.